Our Old Testament reading today is from Isaiah 5, verse 20. And you can follow along in the Pew Bible on page 635. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Today's New Testament reading is found in Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. You can find it in your pew Bible, page 1005. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, at three in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is the Gospel reading, John 9, 4 and 5. You can find it in your pew Bible on page 988. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who has sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. My beautiful son is less sentimental than I am. In fact, I am probably the most sentimental person in our family. I'm the one who hoards all the stuff, won't let pictures be thrown away, you know, that kind of thing. And so because he's less sentimental perhaps than I, uh, he has not been one of those children who just spent hours looking at family albums. It just wasn't in him. Imagine my surprise and delight as he grew and started dating someone how interested he suddenly was in these old picture albums. <laughs> he had a context. He had a story. He had a family. He was once cute as a bug's ear. And you couldn't always tell how naughty he could be from those pictures. He had a mom and a dad who cared about him and places that we went and people that we saw and relatives who doted on him. And it was very interesting and gratifying for me to see him asking to see these albums and showing them and telling the stories in these pictures to a girlfriend. I think these things are very precious to most of us our story. I know it's been a very important feature of my life and my time. Perhaps out of that fire we've had in 2002 in our house, my greatest loss 
was my own baby book that my mother had so carefully put together because it told a story about a child, a baby, and his growing up and the care and love and energy that went into that. You see, I don't think we really accept in any meaningful way most of the time, at least I'll speak for myself, I know I don't, that I am God's child. I don't think in terms of God having perhaps a photo album that I might look through, or in terms of God having a brag book. Grandpas usually do, grandmas always do. A brag book. Look at my grandchildren, aren't they incredible? No, they're rather average, actually. <laughs> you would never say that, right? Oh, yeah, they're so beautiful, we say. It's, it, it, both are true, aren't they? We can't, there's no way everybody's extraordinary because then extraordinary means average, right? That's kind of the world we live in now. Everybody's extraordinary and hence nobody is. And so that's a little boring. But when a grandmother or grandfather or parent looks through their eyes at their child, something is extraordinary there. And it's difficult for me, even though I'm a pastor and I've been a follower of Jesus these many years, it's difficult for me to think of God as possibly having a photo album where he would invite me to sit down and say, these are all the things we've done together. These are all the places we've been together. These are all the times I held you and was with you. And the, oh, by the way, I am so proud of you. Can you imagine that? This is perhaps what God has for each of us. And maybe he's more grandfather or she's more grandmother than a parent. I don't know. But I'm, I'm uh, wanting to think that today. So I hope that you can get your mind as we talk today a little bit, uh, that image in your, in your head, that sense of joy and pride, belonging, the treasure that we each are to God, and how very much He wants everything good for us, all the best for us. It's only when we come from the most dysfunctional of families that, that that's impossible to apprehend. And that takes special prayer and special healing, doesn't it? Because some people come from such tragic places in their family stories. So I don't want to be insensitive to that, but I do want to paint this picture of God as a parent with a bride book and that you are indeed God's special child. You're extraordinary. Yeah, we'll, we'll go with that, right? because he declares us his. We've been talking about story and the importance of narrative and the way in which that figures into our spirituality and our lives. Last week, the idea was taken from a Smuts Van Royen quote. When his story, meaning the story of Jesus, becomes our story, meaning the story of the Adventist church in the context of the quote, then our future will be secure, it'll be sure. Something extraordinary about that idea. When God's story becomes our story. And so we looked at the ways in which that's true. We looked at it from the standpoint of God's creation of us in his image after his likeness, male and female. We looked at it in terms of that image of God piece. And we looked at it from a redemptive point of view. 
God entering our earth, entering our suffering, entering our humanity, entering our brokenness, entering our pain, and living that out in self-sacrificing love without falling prey to the need to reject God or rebel against God, without falling prey to the need to have everything be about Him, without falling prey to selfishness or greed, lasciviousness or lust or anything else that tears the image of God out of us and destroys it. Jesus managed to be fully human in the greatest sense of the word possible and fully divine. And in that, modeled for us, well, lived out something that's salvific for us anyway. So how does our story become his story? Isn't that a perversion of last week's title in a way? I want to suggest to you that there are, in fact, ways our story melds back into God's story. You see, because God is this parent who cares so much about you. For those of you with uh, families, that is to say you've had parents or you are parents, does that leave anybody out? Trying to think. Had parents, are parents? Okay, I'm not missing anybody. Good. You know the extraordinary investment that's, that's, that we're talking about. Extraordinary love that goes into uh, what, I'm, what I'm talking about. And so as God enters our life in a, a different kind of way in Christ, spends time with us in the flesh, sees our weaknesses and our frailties, understands our aches and our pains a bit, although a friend of mine recently said, uh, you know, Jesus was not our example. He said he, he was never 60 and had aches and pains in his joints. That's exactly right, isn't it? He didn't live long enough. Poor Jesus could not be our example in everything because he didn't live long enough. He didn't, he didn't have to suffer through old age. He had a whole different kind of suffering. But coming back to my point, God in Christ enters humanity, experiences all of this with us, dies for us that we might live, shows us the way to the Father, is the fullest, clearest, <coughs> cleanest revelation of the Father that we could ever hope to have, and in Him we see God's love. And as we begin to live that out, the story comes back to the one who told it, the one who created it, the one who entered it. Our story becomes His story. I happen to be influenced a little bit anyway by a mentor of mine, in fact quite a bit by a mentor of mine named Richard Rice. Any of you heard of him? A few. He teaches at Lomaland University now, many years at La Sierra, and he teaches on something called the open God, the openness of God. He talks about the way in which God's experience grows with our own. I like that idea. I'm not just a pre-thought living out a pre-prescribed life. Think about the implications of that. Let's imagine for a moment that everything is known and all time exists already within God and that he knows everything that can be known and beyond, everything there is to know. And there are no surprises for God and everything is in its predicted order and nothing you can do or say will ever surprise him because he's already somehow lived that, already knows that somehow. That he absolutely knows everything. We cannot then say of this being that he's dynamic in any kind of way. 
And since he already knows something must be, you're going to have to do a better job than many theologians do of explaining to me how you might actually be free. How could you do something or be free to do something other than the known will and understanding and knowledge of God? You might not actually be free if that's the case. Which then raises interesting questions about this loving God if you were to be one who was, for example, involved in human trafficking. If you were a sex slave somewhere, what would that tell you about this God who already knew everything and preordained everything and nothing could change because you were where God knew you were going to be? That's awful, isn't it? Yeah? No? You're still getting your mind around big stuff I'm talking about. I like Rick's idea. It's not his. He borrows it from something called process theology and thought, but he says, basically, our experience contributes to God's experience. That somehow relating to him and knowing him, God's experience continues to expand as we live our lives. Now, I believe God knows every hair on our head, as Scripture says. I think he knows us so well that, at least in my case, he can predict my behavior 99.9999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999
9, 4, and 5. In John 9, 4, and 5, we have a story. And in this story, there's something incredible that goes on that mirrors what we just read in the Psalms. I'll start from the beginning. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? I will refrain today from going into the theology of how they thought about all of that. But Jesus answers the question this way, verse 3. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. What did we just read in the psalm? Does this correlate? Yes. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. John is so fond of this theme. Let me interrupt this story for just a moment. Where God is is light and everywhere else is darkness. When man chose to rebel against God, when humankind hid and fled and covered, we became children of darkness, preferring to hide rather than be exposed by the light, preferring to be shadowed away from God rather than in his presence. Jesus came to change all of that, and he reminds us that it is in the day, it is in the light that we can see the work that needs to be done. Darkness comes, and no one can do God's work. But he says, while I'm here, I'm the light of the word. Verse 6, having said this, he spit in the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that it was, that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, no, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. What an odd story. This is not a very enthusiastic response. Here is a man born blind. He's been begging. Jesus heals him. He can now see, but he doesn't know who Jesus is or where Jesus has gone. What was the response in the other healing miracles that you know of? Didn't people want to follow Jesus at that point? Even when he told them, don't tell anybody, it's not my time yet, I don't want anybody knowing about this, what did they do? They put a placard out. Hey, I want to tell you about Jesus, what he did, you won't believe it. I could not walk and now I can walk. He forgave my sins. People couldn't keep their mouths shut. Even the demoniacs wanted to become his disciples. And now this man who was blind and now sees doesn't know who Jesus is and doesn't know where he is and just is an innocent victim in the healing process as he's questioned by the Pharisees. Some commentators think that he actually 
turned and gave testimony against Jesus. That he was actually one of the very, very few that experienced the healing grace of Jesus who didn't stay with the light that he had received. Now John is making a point. When the gospel writers write, they aren't just writing stories as they remember them. They are writing stories in a way that helps us understand a particular point of view. And in this particular story, what might that be? John is illustrating what he said from the beginning. In God is light and no darkness at all. When Jesus came, darkness was banished and light came into the world. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. When Jesus came, blindness spiritually turned into sight spiritually. Blindness physically turned into sight physically. Lameness physically turned into mobility physically. People danced and jumped and rejoiced, as we'll see in another story. But the lack of physical mobility or lameness is also a spiritual trait. Jesus came that everybody might see and by seeing be freed. And so many don't live in freedom, but choose rather the darkness. How is it that our story becomes his story? Our story becomes his story as we live in the light and as we return to that which he intended. Our story becomes his story because as he's entered our suffering and pain, when we become liberated by that, when we become children of the light by that, when we move from lameness to walking, when we move from blindness to sight, that story of healing and grace and reconciliation goes back to the God who entered our suffering and pain in the first place, who created us to see and to walk and to be whole, who created us in his image after his likeness. There's something Calvin Miller says about a sick child. Here's what he says. A healthy child is somehow very much like God. A sick or lame child, his son. Now that is profound. Jesus enters our world, experiences our sickness, suffering, lameness, blindness, as it were. In these metaphors, we see something of who Jesus and God are. And while they enter our stories, they change our, our stories in such a way that now our stories go back to him. The next passage I'd like to look at is the Isaiah passage. We're looking at Isaiah 5. The Pew Bible reference is there in your bulletin if you want to look. Isaiah 5 is a song in the first part, the song of the vineyard it's titled, I will sing for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well, and then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Did Jesus not tell stories like this? 
Do you not find Jesus telling stories about vineyards and those who kept them, about fruits abiding in him, John 15? Are these not stories that Jesus told? And so in Isaiah 5, we have a song of a vineyard where everything was done that a good crop might be the result, only it didn't turn out that way. And the one who plants the vineyard says, because the fruit's no good, I need to start over. We're going to do something else with this land, or we're going to do something else with this plot. And then Isaiah enters these judgments, these woes. We don't, we don't think this way. We have epithets. You know, we raise our fists and our fingers, and we shake them, and we say words that are strong. Um, but we don't really, we're not a culture of blessings and curses. We don't... And, and by the way, I think it would be a beautiful thing, just as an aside, another freebie, a wonderful thing for us as parents and elders and teachers, leaders, church members, to learn to bless one another. What a, what, a, what a thing that will be. In fact, at the end, I have a blessing for you. But we're certainly not a culture of curses. You've heard some funny ones, you know. Um, Middle Eastern type things that are just humorous. You know, ticks, fleas, sand flies, all that sort of thing. But this curse is uttered by Isaiah. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You know, isn't that it? Isn't the distortion of our lives just that? Are we not sold a bill of goods that somehow the bitter is the sweet, the dark is the light, the evil is the good? Is this not the essence of our rebellion in our state? But thanks be to Christ, who in entering that made it possible for us not only to see the truth there, but to live it, to have mud put on our eyes, made with his own saliva, and to have the chance to wash ourselves in a pool to which we've been sent, and to wipe that mud away and see clearly again, to belong to the light, to have our story be his story. It's a powerful thing. Finally, the story that I want to end on is Acts 3. It's not dissimilar to what we just read in the gospel with the blind man, but I would note quickly now that Jesus isn't the one present physically. It's rather Peter and John. One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. Alms is one of the main facets or tenets, if you will, of Jewish life as well as Muslim life. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. A connection within the light. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. This momentary second of attention. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, 
And I can just see the man turning his eyes at that point. All right, who else is going to help me? And we do this ourselves, right? We ask God for something in such a particular way that the second it's not clear we're going to get it, we're on to the next solution. We're ready, we're ready to move on before we've even heard the rest of the sentence or what it is that God might want to do. Look at us. I don't have silver or gold, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. Can you imagine? The disciples themselves, because of the presence of the Holy Spirit, became the extension of the work that Jesus did, bringing light to eyes and mobility to feet. They became an extension of the work that Jesus did, pointing humankind back to the Father, the source of life and joy, helping people to be fully human in every sense that they were destined to be. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man he used to sit, begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. When our story is his story, people will be filled with wonder and amazement. When you sit down with them and show them the book of pictures and tell them the stories of God's pride in you and the way God has journeyed with you and how he's held you through dark times and how he was there with you at the brink of death. When you recount for people the mercy and the love, the identity that is yours, when you show them a picture of light and life and wholeness, your story has become his story. I want you to repeat these words after me to the person one at a time. We'll do this twice. So one of you speak and the other listen, and then we'll reverse that process. And you can repeat after me. So decide who will speak first. All right. Now say these words. May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Now, the other person who didn't speak, it's your turn. May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. The Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. May the favor of the Lord our God rest on you. Establish the work of your hands in our midst. Yes, 
Establish the work of your hands. Amen.